0: You're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shelleck and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Well, welcome everybody to episode 15 of Bare Naked Money. I'm here with uh, Josh Shelleck, and we've received a request. Now, all honesty, it was an internal request to uh, put together a podcast on economic data and points and how to use that data and how not to use that data. So I was reminded of a time in my teens when I was working in kitchens as I tried to put myself through school and I worked with a a very eccentric cook by the name of Quinton and he had this thing when things got really, really busy, he would start to mumble phrases over and over again. And one of his favorites was Control, the ability to manipulate any situation so the inevitable outcome is the one which you desire. Control, every man wants it, no man has it, I'm Rod Sterling. It was an opening to a Twilight Zone episode that was a favorite of his, and it came to mind when we started talking about economic data points and the elusive illusion of control that they give us. So, Josh, why don't you kick it off and lead us into a conversation on economic data points. The good, the bad, and well, the ununderstandable.
1: I wasn't really sure where you're going with that, but I think you landed the plane. So good (laughs) job, Colin. There you go. So economic data, it's a messy topic in a lot of ways. And what we're going to cover today is how to interpret economic data that comes around. Not just economic data, but... uh, financial data of all kinds, how it can be used or or not used and what it means for markets. Because ultimately that's, that's what we're doing here. We're investors. We're trying to invest. We're trying to take information and and use it to make decisions. So ultimately that's what we want to get to. What does all of this economic data mean for markets, if anything? So I guess what we want to start with challenges with economic data, we kind of want to go to the end first and, and talk about some of the issues with economic data and maybe this illusion of control that Colin is talking about. And I think, Colin, for me, one of the, the biggest issues and one that you harp on all the time is that this economic data, when we get it in our hands, it's always lagging.
0: Absolutely, and you know, my, my favorite example is when, when there's talk of recession, everybody talks about we're in a recession and we're out of a recession. Recessions are defined historically. It's three quarters of negative GDP growth in a row. You know, so absent that you don't have a recession. You define them historically. So even a lot of the terms that we use require historical or lagging information in order to validate, you know, when you, any number you look at, it was captured 30 days ago, 60 days ago. It was the last six months. It was the last 12 months. So it's all historical information. And then it becomes the question of how do you take historical information and predict the future? And that's the dark art of of trying to do this kind of thing. What's your favorite stat, Josh, that you think really suffers from a lagging issue? Do you have one?
1: Well, I'm glad you, you mentioned that one, because that's where I was going to go with it too. And we can just look at last year to see how this is so relevant uh, because I, and I thought recession is, is six months of or two quarters but three quarters two quarters you know we can we can quibble over this over the numbers but it doesn't really I think, matter I think you're right yeah
0: I, I may have spoke.
1: yeah so anyway last year April rolled around and we pretty much knew by that time we were in a recession everybody was at home half the people were out of work people weren't spending money on anything we pretty much knew by that time we were in a recession but to define a recession, would have taken another five months. Plus, you don't just know what the economic growth is at the end of the month. There, it takes some time for this data to come in to be understood, to be evaluated, to be produced. So it took probably another three months after that that you could actually say, yeah, uh, we were in a recession. And by the way, by the time that recession hits, even though you're defining it historically, the stock market, for example, is, is one example of investment markets, has already gone down, historically speaking. So it's not very useful. And the lagging issue with uh, with GDP, with recessions is, is, is a big one. It makes it pretty much a, a useless statistic for trying to invest. Well, I think
0: you've kind of hit on a, a very important point here, Josh, because the large percentage of people or a large importance is put on the use of economic data to predict what the market's going to do. So you've got something the market tends to be very forward looking, very expectations based, and you're trying to look in, in the rearview mirror and see where it's been to see where it's going and there's a real disconnect there. Like you said in April everybody's sitting at home, I don't know, I have an old expression, uh, a recession is when my neighbor loses his job, a depression's when I lose my job we all knew things were bad and that was reflected in the market. So the conversation about, is it a recession? How big a recession is it? How deep is the recession? How long will it persist? All those conversations, you know, you're filling column inches and you're, you're, you're filling time, but it's not all that productive and it's not all that illuminating as to, to what may come next.
1: Yeah. Now, another challenge with data of all kinds is that it's noisy. And you and I talk about this on a regular basis. What example do you have of of some noisiness uh, in the data and how that precludes it from being as useful as it would be otherwise? I
0: I guess for me, the clearest example is watching the real-time headlines scroll across the the, the various news sources when a a piece of data comes out. All right, so the jobs data comes out and the top-line number is bad. In the morning, the market's good. So the headline may read, market sees through bad top-line number to the strong underlying numbers in the job market level. Well, at the end of the day, the market's down and and the headline will come across your screen that... Well, obviously the disappointing jobs number has, you know, collapsed the stock market today. So they're painting a narrative, you know, they're not even looking for the the actual real story that's there. They're just trying to write a headline and they're just trying to, and and we've done other pieces on this where you just connect, you know, a seemingly plausible story to a couple of data points and you run with it and everybody will consume that. And that never tells the whole story for sure.
1: Yeah. So the noise that I go to is, and you and I have talked about this book by uh, Nate Silver, The Signal and the Noise. So he's a statistician, for those who haven't heard of him, writes about sports, uh, politics a lot, runs a website called 538. So in 2016, their numbers that that he ran through his his website, his database, showed that there is about a two-thirds chance of Hillary Clinton winning the election. Now, we all know how that turned out. And people were very critical after saying, well, you said Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. he said, hold on, hold on, hold on. I did not say she was going to win the election. I said that probabilities were that that would happen. But there's still a one third chance that Trump won the election. And the reason you don't define these things in absolutes is because there's so many things that go into trying to influencing these data or these measures that you're just never 100 percent sure with this one specifically you have sampling bias you have people's inherent biases you have people lying about what their uh political leaning is so there's just so much sort of chaos going around all these numbers that you can never really take any of them as gospel
0: well in the in the, the immortal words of the great philosopher ricky bobby you know, 16 times out of 20, it's right every time, you know? And, you know, that's actually so true when it comes to statistics. People misunderstand probability. They misunderstand what probability means. You know, a two-thirds chance of a win doesn't mean a win. It just means that it's more probable. Uh, and I love Nate. Nate, Nate. Nate Silver has written some good stuff, and his 538 website is a wonder. But now I've got some stuff from his website. I'll, I'll talk about later. Big t got to stay. Got to find out what the next thing is Nate Silver had to say.
1: Yeah. So another challenge with data is a lot of times it could just be outright wrong or or less uh, often than that, just misleading with with some of the numbers that that are thrown out there. And Colin, you and I did a a short video about this uh, just last week and Cristiano Ronaldo moving the Coke bottle (laughs) from uh, so Cristiano Ronaldo a big football player from Portugal and at at one of the the recent tournaments he moved the coke bottle and said you know drink water not coke you know uh, in effect at the time and the headline read four billion dollars shaved off of coke's market cap because of this this action by Ronaldo but you and I both know this is bs this is wrong It's, it's not or maybe not wrong They did lose $4 billion in the market cap that day was very misleading because the rest of the market on average was down by about the same percentage. So again, connecting these two things, you know, complete nonsense, right?
0: We talk about data being wrong. And this is the other piece that I pulled off Nate Silver's website before I came online. He he does a really great job. I went in looking for it. My favorite wrong number is the jobs number, the monthly jobs number of the US, because it is ridiculously revised after the fact. So, you know, he's done the calculation and that you can reliably count on the number uh, that comes out for the monthly jobs number out of the US, which is a survey of 150,000 businesses and is actually revised twice after it's issued. So when it's issued the next two months, they revise it. So when you see that number, it's plus or minus 120,000 90% of the time. So, that, and again, 90% of the time, which means 10% of the time, it's more wrong than 120,000, right? So you take a look, I, I pulled up like December of 2018, they reported 312,000 new jobs, which was a big number. Everybody got excited. The next month it got revised down to 227. That's not as impressive. So, you know, back to our point, when you rely on that first piece of data that comes out, if you think that's a thing, and that's a real thing, and that's a concrete thing, and you try to build something on that thing, and then you come to find out, oh, it, it was wrong. Well, you know, you've now built your house on on sand and, you know, it's just going to slip away from you. So, you know, when you talk about being wrong, these things are routinely, materially, repeatably, we can calculate how wrong they are. (laughs) We we, we actually, these are so wrong and they're so wrong so consistently we can calculate how wrong they are consistently. So again, how precise do you want to calculate to four decimal points on something that's plus or minus 120,000 on a 30 day span?
1: So you have a favorite wrong number. Do you have a least favorite wrong number?
0: (laughs) No, but I'm, I'm sure if you gave me some time to reflect or threw that at me before we recorded, I could come up with one. Uh, but no, I don't have a least favorite. I'm not that guy. I only have favorites. Yeah. So
1: we have these issues with the data and then the next step with, once you have the data in front of you, understanding all these issues is okay. So how do I actually interpret this then? Do I just throw it out? Probably not. Do I take it and assume it's gospel? Probably not either. So there's some middle ground uh, there and and I guess some techniques that we can use to to help us interpret data that is messy, that is noisy. So I'm just gonna throw a couple data points at you, Colin, and, and tell me how you would interpret them. So first one here. To reach G7 average of homes per resident, Canada would need an extra 1.8 million homes. So basically what this, this report, and it was actually a report is telling you is that to to match some of its peer countries around the world, Canada would need to add an extra 1.8 million homes. And this is going to talk about the real estate issues that we have right now with pricing so high.
0: Yeah, see Josh, my affliction, my disability is my mind just begins to spiral with questions. And I'm not even smart enough to know all the questions to ask. But I mean, I was like, "Well, what's the average family size? What's the density? Like, how many people live in a home in other members of the G seven compared to Canada?" I mean, there's some very material things that are left of that top line number that, to me, would radically affect the new, the the actual actionable intel, if there is any there at all, to draw a conclusion from a policy perspective as to what Canadian politicians could do to address this. Because again, let's say for example you know, the average number of people per home in Canada is higher than the G7. Well, okay, maybe that changes the number materially, maybe not, but I, there's, there's all kinds of other things that would factor into that. That a top line number, anything in one dimension, i, I, I throw out is a bit of an exaggeration, but I, I take it as a good friend of mine would say, with a huge grain of salt, uh, <laughs> not a ton of salt, but a huge grain, one individual grain that's very, very large.
1: I think I may be your good friend, but <laughs> kilogram of salt, ton of salt, something with a lot of salt. It's a lot of salt. It can be very, very salty. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is you don't want to take the, the data as gospel. You want to look at it with a little bit of a critical eye, and you want to probably ask some follow-up questions along the way.
0: The analogy I've come up with to try to explain this point to people is, again, the old farmer's almanac, you know, when the old farmer you know, consulted the almanac and said, hey, this is going to be a really dry summer. Well, you know, that's one data point. And for a long period of time in human history, that was the thing that you went to. Now, there's a couple of different ways you could use that information. You could completely change your, your crop structure and your livestock structure and only plant and use things that work in a low water environment to be ready for this. Or you could take steps to increase your access to irrigation and other supplies of water just in case you need it. One method means you're counting on this prophecy to come true. The other method is you've taken necessary steps to mitigate it. If it comes true, you know, one of them can lead to catastrophe or catastrophic outcomes. The other leads you to "Ah, maybe I wasted some time putting that extra barrel of water away and I didn't need it. Right. So to me, that's when you're looking at a piece of data as to how you use it you know, to go all in on any piece of data is is problematic. But we've done that. We've we've done that as a race since the very first humanoid, way back in time, stuck the very first thing in the ground and waited for it to grow. You looked up above and said, gee, I wonder if it's going to rain. And then you started to figure out a system for predicting that. It's like, ooh, well, the bird flew over from left to right. Therefore, it's going to rain tomorrow because last time the bird flew from left to right. We've been doing this for millennia as long as you've been on the planet. It's no different now, except we get a lot more data. We have a lot more data to go play with. And you know, there's something called the, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, which I love. You know, It's the whole take a case of ammunition, a case of beer, put a couple guys from Texas in a blind shooting at the side of a barn all day. End of the day, you walk over, you draw a circle around the biggest grouping and say, yep, that's where I was shooting. You can find patterns and data, and we've got computers to do it for us now, you know, all day long. But you got to be careful how you use it.
1: Yeah. So we have access to more data than we ever have, which means we find more relationships than we ever have. And it doesn't necessarily mean that those are, are real causality relationships. They could just be, you know, mere figments of the data, so to
0: speak. When ice cream consumption increases, drownings increase. It's not that one's connected to the other, but when it gets warm, people do two things. They eat ice cream and they swim warm. Yeah is the connection between those two data points. So, <laughs> another favorite of mine when it comes to data, this is actually a real thing I read out of World War II, because they were losing so many planes over Germany as the, as the planes went over, over on the raids and came back. So there's actual diagrams when the planes landed, they would diagram every bullet hole and they would figure out where the planes were being hit. And they took that data and they said, okay, these are all the planes, these are where all the bullet holes are, so we have to reinforce the planes where they're getting hit. And so they went through a whole process to do that. Then somebody put their hand up and said, well, these are the planes that made it back. Maybe the ones that didn't make it back got hit in the other place. Oh, OK, take all that stuff off. We're going to move it into the spot that, where all these planes weren't hit. Yeah. Right? It's the, Again, it's, you have to really think about the data that you're getting just to act on it can lead you to a downed plane somewhere over Germany in late 1946.
1: Yeah. So here's one I want you to think about and tell me how you interpret this one U S household and net worth has grown by $26 trillion over the past four quarters.
0: Wow. See, net worth is a big thing. A lot of stuff goes into net worth. There's a former president of the United States who ascribed an extraordinary amount of money to the name, you know, as part of their net worth, which, was kind of a made up number. But no, I mean, my, my mind goes to the details on this. Like how much of that was real estate? Was it all real estate? Was actually real estate even more than that? And there was a negative movement in other parts of, of people's net worth. It's a nice start of a conversation. But again, I've got 15 follow-up questions. I'm not even smart enough to know that I have all the follow-up questions before I would draw any kind of conclusion from that.
1: Yeah. Well, or my my mind went immediately with this was That seems like a big number, but 20, I don't know. (laughs) Is that a lot? like, what is the net worth of of the U S households? 26 trillion. Yeah. It seems huge. But once you start playing with numbers that big, you know, our brains just aren't used to consuming those numbers. So we're just not really that sure what to do with it. So when I dug in a little bit more, okay, it's, it's grown at a 23% rate. So that that's pretty substantial over a year. And then dug in a little bit more and it's never grown by such an amount over four quarters like this so that's even more so like okay wow so this is a real number this this it seems big on its face but once you dig a little bit more like wow that yeah it it is a big thing so i i guess you don't want to be knee-jerk and just react to the to the headline to the number and just say like okay well 26 trillion that's awesome i'm gonna go buy a whole bunch of stocks or you know, something like that and on the other side, you don't want to see a negative number and say, well, I'm just going to go sell my entire portfolio and hold cash. Both of those things could be problematic.
0: Well, Josh, you just used to something very, very important because you and I, believe it or not, have a reputation for always poo-pooing things, but every once in a while, the headline, when you dig into it, that's a real headline. You know, that, oh, geez, that checks out. Right. This is a thing. Hey, look, it's a thing. This is a thing, you know, so that is the truth. But again, it, it's, it's not on the surface, it's when you dig down to it. The other one that's similar to that, Josh, is one of my favorites is like, you know, pick your favorite market index, the, the quickest ever thousand point drop. Okay, well if the index is now at 30,000 and it used to be at a thousand, a thousand points is different.
1: I hate this one. It's like every year, it's like, well, we've never had a 500 point gain before. It's like, yeah, but the percentage just keeps going up. So this 500 points is, is not nearly as big as it used to be. So that's, uh, you know, that, that one drives me nuts.
0: Or you're here sometime in the early February and it's like largest single day gain on the stock market this year. It's like, We've been in this year six minutes. I mean, what, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: So one of the other things that's, and what we're both talking about is it's often helpful to interpret data relatively, So relative to something else relative, the, the, the gain in the Dow relative to how big the Dow is today, or the gain in us household net worth relative to what the household net worth is expectations, to history, to some other similar entities. Are we comparing Canada to the US or Canada to another country? Often comparing it to something makes a data point that's really not so relevant a lot more relevant.
0: Yeah, but what you just described is a lot of work. And, you know, I don't want to put all that work in. I'd much rather get the headline go, "Ooh, that's scary, and run off and tell my friends a scary story. And and like, oh, well, you know, that obviously means, what does it mean? Well, we obviously need to sell the house. Oh, okay. You know, because you know, it, it, it is a lot of work to actually dig into something to see if it's real or not. It's much more natural to have that reaction. You know? And, and the, so in the root of all this, and I've told this story a number of times, I don't know how many times we've recorded it, but I had an anthropologist explain this really, really well. The human nature is we react to input. Again, the the caveman sitting in his his camp and the saber-toothed tiger walked in. One guy stood up and fought. Well, every once in a while he was successful, so that stayed in the gene pool. One guy got up and ran away. Well, Every once in a while he got away, so that stayed in the gene pool. The guy that just sat there to see what was going to happen next. Yeah, no, none of those guys made it. So, you know, we have been bred for millennia to react quickly and decisively to these things. That because if, if our ancestors didn't do that, we're not here but it's a different world now. There's so much more data. It's almost impossible to react to all of it with urgency, but we still have that impulse and it's latent and it hides within us. And every once in a while it creeps out and like, Oh, I could do something. Maybe, no. Yeah. maybe you don't. Yeah.
1: yeah. You, you made a good point there. People are, are just inherently lazy. A lot of people anyway, so they don't want to go digging a little bit deeper. And as you said, we're inherently fearful as well. <laughs> so we don't, we don't, want to necessarily react to the headline that we see. And for me, the, I'm gonna probably catch some flack for this, but vaccines and blood clots is, is one big issue that we see coming up in the data recently. And if you did a little bit of digging, you'd probably feel a lot better. So let's say this one vaccine and the, the data shows that the, the blood clotting issue happened sometime, somewhere between one and 50,000 to one and a million people. So on its surface you say, you know what, dozen Canadians have had blood clots from this vaccine. Oh, well, that's a little bit nerve wracking, of course, when you're going in to get this vaccine, but when you put it in the context of, you know, let's say one in 500,000. Okay, well, that's pretty unlikely. Here are a few things. This, again, this is coming from a scientific source. Few things that have higher chance of blood clots than this vaccine, birth control, pregnancy, Long plane rides, smoking, and the COVID virus itself. That's data. That's maybe a little bit more relevant than just this, this headline number. So unless you're considering never taking a plane ride again, you probably should be pretty comfortable with the, with the vaccination here.
0: Well, no, again, an anxiety is a thing and people, you know, we see it with our clients all the time, get anxious about different things for different reasons. Sometimes it's availability bias. They know somebody personally who's had a struggle. The, the human condition is such that we're very, very poor at ascribing accurate probabilities to things. You know, maybe if we were, we wouldn't actually drive automobiles because on a risk scale, driving automobiles kills the best and brightest of our of our people every year. But we've made that deal with the devil and we're okay with it. So. There really is a lot of discretion in the kinds and types of risks that people are willing to, and not all of it. In fact, very little of it could be ascribed as being rational, but it's real. Just because it's irrational and or wrong, it doesn't make it not real. It's a thing and people have feelings. So,
1: Right. So all that said, how do we use this information for investing? So taking all this, this data column that, that you see out there, What do you actually sort of distill into helping you make an investment decision and how do you do that?
0: Well, well, for me, the most productive thing is to get away from using the data to predict the next data point. No matter how much data I give you, you can't accurately predict the next point. What you can do, and I find very, very useful, and we do it a lot within our group is try to ascribe different levels of strength to different strategies at a point in time. As we sit here today, Here's the relative valuation. Here's the relative, you know, on a relative basis. Here's where things sit today. And this is what I know. And then we nudge our group. We get excited. We might see a 2% move. That's a big meeting. And we all have to have a drink afterwards, you know, because again, we all the smartest people I know, and I'm talking truly the smartest people. I know very few of them are sure of anything. In fact, the more information you get, the less sure that people become. But there is value and we have found value in trying to you know, ascertain what are the relative levels of strength at a given point in time. And as long as you focus on this and not saying over the next 30 years, over the next 40 years or over the next five years, even like as, lo- as long as your thesis doesn't include on a meaningful way one of those, then I think that there is value in trying to dig into into data. But the other thing I'd say is be careful because you're you're trying to figure out something that isn't priced into the market. At the end of the day, that's your goal. You're trying to find in doing this, you're trying to sift through the data to figure out that hey, maybe there's there's an opportunity here to to do a little bit better than the overall animal, and here's your competition. And this is actually old. One of our One of the firms that we we have an allocation with, the Capital Group, we gave a presentation here in Halifax, you know, probably two or three years ago. And they were demonstrating the use of large data in the U.S. where they had purchased a bunch of cell phone information. And all it was was location information. There was no detail information. And they wrote a program that went through and figured out that in the previous three months, the foot traffic close to a McDonald's restaurant, was roughly 6 or 7% higher than expected. They then made the bet that, hey, you know what? I bet this quarterly earnings number coming out from McDonald's is actually going to beat expectations. And they were right. That's your competition. Do you have a supercomputer with a few PhDs writing algorithms to detect valuable, useful, actual meaningful patterns? No? Do you know those people? No? Okay. Reading the headlines in the Globe Mail on the weekend should be for entertainment purposes only.
1: Yeah, there is a lot of data out there today and a lot of it is completely useless or irrelevant. And I'd say the vast majority of it is completely useless or irrelevant when trying to make investment decisions. One, because some of it's just never useless or relevant at all. It's just completely coincidental. Two is exactly what you said. When you're investing, you need to have. One of two things, either information that's different than all the other investors that are out there. And I would say any individual investor off the street is going to have a really hard time finding that information. Or two, you're going to need to interpret that information differently, the information that is available and out there differently than the average investor. And that's extremely difficult to do without some really disciplined and robust processes in place. There's a lot of data out there, economically especially, that is not a leading indicator, so it doesn't tell you anything about how your investments may move in the future. GDP is one that we've been talking about, we talked about it at the outset, that's a great example. This is a lagging indicator when compared to the stock market. The stock market knows that that a recession is coming before the data actually shows it. So if you are one of those people that said, Hey, you know, I, I see that the GDP numbers are negative. I should sell my investments. You're about three to six months too late. Sorry. Mm -hmm. So what you're looking for are the specific indicators that maybe, maybe a a leading indicator of something that could happen in the future. And I say maybe, and could, because again, nothing's gospel. Nothing's going to happen for sure. You don't know if a trend has changed or a relationship has changed. You mentioned the other day, the last global pandemic that we had. This happened about a hundred years ago. So if you're trying to take any lessons from the last pandemic, maybe we can, but I'm going to say a lot of things have changed over the last century. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not using horse and buggy majority anymore. We do have normal automobiles. We have this thing called the internet. We have a thing called the cell phone. A lot of things have changed. I think everybody can agree on that. So I guess, importantly, when you're, you're taking all this information and investing, you alluded to this nudging one way or the other, but really it's about not putting all your eggs in one basket and remaining diversified. If you're doing that, then you'll probably be okay. And
0: I think it's important for us to address the elephant in the room, because again, if our opinion of you know, all this data that's out there is, is less than positive from a decision-making perspective, then the follow-up question is why, why does it exist and why is it so widely reported? I like to point to a documentary film that was done not that long ago talking about the birth of cable news. It's called Anchorman, Anchorman 2. There's a, a newscaster by the name of Ron Burgundy, who is a washed up newscaster, and he gets approached about to putting together a 24 hour news show. And it's like, that's preposterous, there's not that much news out there. Well, this you know, documentary, as I call it, actually shows exactly how to put together a 24 hour news show. And a lot of it had to do with getting people excited about things that really wasn't all that useful. It was just entertainment. So news is entertainment if treated as such thousand percent in favor of that. If it's, Oh, I have to go on my phone and make my trade because I just referred this on the news. Just, you know, please stop that. Like there's, there, there, there's, there's no, no value in that. And if you, if you happen, if the worst thing that can happen is you get it right two or three times in a row because now you're convinced you're a genius and the world's just waiting for you. Trust me, the world is just waiting for you and it will teach you the lesson in a really painful way at some point after it builds you up. Two Will
1: Farrell references in one podcast call and I think that's got to be a record.
0: Well, you know, I've, I I I would say I have a diverse library to pull from, but maybe it's not that diverse after all. <laughs>
1: Bottom line, be careful with economic data, interpret it with, as I say, a massive grain of salt and don't think anything's for sure when you're using it to draw investment conclusions.
0: I gotta go find a massive grain of salt. I just need to see one.
1: (laughs) I'm gonna find one for you. I'm gonna send it to you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Colin.
0: This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth Inc. IA Private Wealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.
1: IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth Inc. operates.
0: Based on observation, it seems that the time an investor is most likely to move his or her portfolio to a new advisor is when the old advisor dies. Let us go on record as saying that having a pulse is not a great reason to trust someone with your entire financial future. Stop putting your life in the hands of stillbreathingwealthplanners.com and call us.